0: get a Twitter storm against you it is like being beaten it's like being whipped actually it's like being punched repeatedly and sometimes you can manage that and you you can sign off you know other times you think I have now been I've been assaulted I've been assaulted
1: Hello and welcome to Confessions. My name's Giles Fraser, and this is the podcast where I sit down with an interesting and well known person and uh, try and get to the bottom of what they're all about and uh, what makes them tick. And I'm here today with the lovely um, national treasure and uh, uh, classicist, Dame Mary Beard. Mary, welcome.
0: Uh, f- Thank you, Charles, and I think we can, we can get rid of the dame for the next hour, please. <laughs> Sounds like a pantomime, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> nice, though. Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah, it know. is nice. I mean, it's uh, innocent fun, but... You know. <laughs> and it's a good message not to take yourself too seriously.
1: <laughs> um, so how we normally start these uh, conversations, Mary, is we talk uh, a little bit... Uh, I invite you to talk a little bit about um, your family background and where you come from and what your mum and dad were like and um, sort of basically to try and work out the, the sort of values, I guess, in the, in the home that you were brought up in. So perhaps you'd start by telling us a little
0: bit about your parents. Uh, yes, yeah, it's not difficult, actually. It's quite, really quite a simple story. I, they were relatively elderly. Um, it was my dad's second marriage uh, he was an architect in Shrewsbury, um, and my mum was a school teacher, uh, and we lived to start with in the schoolhouse at Church preen, a kind of beautiful bit of you know rural idyll, probably kind of obscuring all sorts of dreadful things that were going on. but you know when I was five i didn 't realize that um, and I first of all went to my mum 's school local school. Um, and then we moved into the, the hot spots of a big village called Much Wenlock. <laughs> <laughs> and then, when I was in my uh, early teens, we moved into the greater hot spots of Shrewsbury. Right. Um, and by then, I was going to the local girls' high school. Right. Um, and I was being a bit of an only child swat. Okay yeah combined with sort of um would be revolutionary you know Okay <laughs> and did you get any of the, did they have did they have a sort of political bent um my dad was a liberal the you know in the the pre Pre-modern liberals. He was right. a, a liberal, um, and he was a, you know an enduring, slightly arty, slightly wastrel kind of guy. Who oh, were, I like him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, I think he would have. I think he would have, Charles. And he um, he did really uh, mostly historic buildings, and didn't make very much money out of it. Um, but was you know you know happy happy at the day job, and my mum was a really successful primary school head Um, and she was much more red than he was I mean she was you know Labour Party through and through uh, and to the left of it Uh, and she was she was a very different kind of character he'd gone to uh, an independent school and then uh, become an architect um, uh, via a diploma in architecture so he never did a degree um, she had really, really wanted to go to university, but she came from a big family in the countryside of Herefordshire. Dad was a wheelwright um when such things still existed, and they couldn 't afford to send her to university it was you know it was this was pre grant she was born before women had the vote you know? yeah, well. um, <clears throat> and they said they could afford two years uh to send her to do something, but not three for university, so she went to teacher training college because that was only two years and I think that kind of all the rest of her life she somehow felt you know that she 'd been a bit cheated changed yes, just a little and she had been you know no, she yeah. was right. Um,
1: and did other members of her family go to uh, other brothers and sisters go to university? No, none okay. of them
0: did. They, her her brother was uh, an auctioneer, right? <laughs> and, uh, right. Of of um, you know, of animals, not of <laughs> not of works of art. So you're
1: the first person in your family and to go to university to get a
0: degree. Yeah, I mean, my dad did his diploma at Liverpool University, but oh. um, and she was. I mean, I, looking back, I can see. Partly that she must have been so pleased that I could do what she had must have been, you know, must have been. I mean, and it was, you know, it was the era of grants. You could, I mean, you you know, you went to university under completely different conditions from what you do now. But I think also what I didn't realise at the time was that she, she never made me feel somehow that she was living through me. I never oh, kind no. of... I never got that feeling, you know. So, you know, in retrospect... I, was I, she, though? She was very pleased.
1: Yes. And I think yes. to some
0: extent, you know, she was... As I said, she was a good uh, uh, a left-wing Labour Party member and she kind of did have a a, a very 1950s, 1960s view of social and political progress and you know, in, in one way, I was an example of that. You yeah, know, that yeah, I yeah. could do that, and it was something that she was pleased about, not something that that she was, you know, concealing her envy. And you know, I, you know, one of the things, you know, if she's long dead, but you know, one of the things I never asked her about, and kind of regret not asking her about, is is her relationship to my opportunities.
1: Yes. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um yeah. I certainly never you know I certainly never felt weighed down by it. You know it
1: sounds like a very happy very happy childhood. Well,
0: it sort of was, you know, a lot of you know it was a lot of um Small market town life, you know, which was, uh, you know, a lot of time spent in the pub, I have to say. (laughs) And, you know, in the end they divorced. So there was, you know, it it wasn't, you know, idyllic in the way. They didn't divorce till I went to university. Um, But I think by the time I'd gone, then somehow the eyeball to eyeball nature of their marriage um, became unsustainable without somebody else in the house. You were a bit of
1: the glue that kept them I together. Was, I,
0: I, again, I assume that now. Um, you know, I never asked. And, and, you know, I was... You know, I suppose that... Um, You know, you'd say that I was a very difficult product of... I mean, I have a half-brother who was my father's son by his first marriage, but effectively I was uh, an only child, an only child of elderly, relatively elderly parents. And I showed all the kind of um, stereotypical characteristics of that. Were you you a
1: SWAT? I I imagine you were probably a bit of a SWAT.
0: I was a very... Funny, Or perhaps, you know, I suppose in a way, predictable combination of SWAT and, you know, really wanting to be a rebel, you know, really, really kind of um, wanting to, you know, pull down the class structure, you know, or pull down anything really. And I, I vividly remember sitting in, doing my, you know, my Latin prep in our kitchen and I'd insisted that there was... Um, uh, a poster in the kitchen of Angela Davis, black Californian radical who had been imprisoned and there was a slogan on it which said the real, I can still remember, the real real criminals in society are not those in prisons but those who have stolen the wealth of the world from the people. Okay, <laughs> And, you know, I sat under this, you know, translating Livy and Cicero. But, but that's, it's, a moa mat is
1: not the obvious way to go if you want to right the wrongs of the world?
0: Um... You might think that. Okay. Jess. Well, it's a question, actually. You you, you <laughs> might think that, I and mean, when I think that, um, I think there are many different paths to righting the wrongs of the world. Um, but I think that teenagers can often be quite split in that way. You know, you both want to get ten out of ten, A plus, very good, Mary. You know, hardly a mistake in your rendering of Tacitus here. <laughs> you know, and you want to do. You know, I, I I did spend some evenings. Um, Putting uh, black power leaflets through the um, slightly leafy suburbs of Shrewsbury, you know, I'm feeling that that was I was doing my bit. God knows what happened to these leaflets as <laughs> through the doors the of people in Shrewsbury. Shrewsbury. You know, maybe, but you know, you never know. Maybe, maybe somebody picked it up and thought, "Hey, there's a world out there which is different."
1: And and uh, the the classics were uh, an early love.
0: I mean, I guess... I guess so. I mean, I think it's you mythologize it, don't you? Really? You yeah, know, yeah, you, I imagine so. Um, I've
1: heard the story about you going to—is it British Museum and seeing a bit of old cake? Yeah, and uh, and suddenly this was the sort of—it becomes a sort of Damascus yeah. moment. That's right. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and we
0: invent our Damascus moments. Yes, as I'm sure St Paul did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've know, been on
1: the road to Damascus. Like saying, I can't say it's not all that. <laughs> it's
0: not. That. No. What was great about this—this, this, you know, two thousand, three thousand year old cake in the British Museum was not just that he was there, and you know, I think I was. I remember I was five, and I do. I, I remember this occasion, even though I'm sure I've mythologised it. Um, it was not just that was amazing. I mean, how could a piece of cake, you know? last that long. Um, but I couldn't really see it very well. And uh, somebody who must have been a curator saw me trying to kind of peer because, you know, the BM is now very child friendly, but I can tell you in 1960, it was not child friendly. And he came and he saw me looking and he said, what do you want me to see? And I said, the cake, he got the keys out of his pocket and he, no. got, and he got the cake out of the case. And I think for me, what what's sort of memorable is not just the cake. So how can a piece of cake survive that long? Uh, in the sands of Egypt, desiccated and carbonised. Yes, it can. Oh, I see. Don't ask me any more details okay. than that, Giles. Um But it was <laughs> it was that somebody... It, it was there, but someone would let you see it. Yeah. And, and really, you know, it was that guy, whoever he was, he must be long dead, Um it was that guy who sort of opened the case up for me. That was the magic moment, you know. Just and the
1: world is a bigger place in time. I mean, I guess that's one of the things it says, isn't it? That you can, yeah,
0: you know, and and you can access it, and you can put your nose right up to it. Yeah. you know, it's a bigger place in time which you can experience. Yeah, yeah and I think is. that was, um, that, that was, the, the, you know, what really kind of, you know, what what that was the light bulb moment, but I. But I think also, you know, you have to be realistic, and you know, I think, um, uh, clever young girls like being good at things. Yes, yes. yes. You know, and you get a and huge the affirmation
1: rem- that you get. From yeah,
0: it. and so you. I mean, there's a kind of circle, isn't there, between what you like and what you're good at, and you like it because you're good at it, and you're good at it because you like yes. it. Yes, yes, yes. And and you know, I think that uh, classics for me and. Uh, i i've utterly changed my mind about it now but it seemed to be something that you could control and you could master you could do a correct uh translation you could you could know the grammar you could it it gave me i'm sure it's an illusion but it's an illusion of uh of mastery yes. that you didn't get, you know, particularly you didn't get from other languages where you had to speak to people.
1: It's very interesting. We had um, uh, the, the delightful mathematician Marcus de Sautoy uh, on, yeah. uh, on this programme uh, a while back and uh, he was talking in similar ways about maths when he was an adolescent yeah. And, yeah. A, and in terms of control yes. and i imagine when you're an adolescent and so many things seem outside your control here yeah. is an area yes. which you can master yeah. and it gives some yeah. sense in a confusing world of
0: order and yeah. and i'm sure that's I'm, I'm sure that was a big part for me i couldn't ever have conceptualized it like that then and now i think look you know, it wasn't real control. Yeah, I spent the next, the next fifty years of my life learning why I didn't control it. Yes, yes. Um, but uh, but you know, when you're a teenager, um, and you're good at something, and you can make everything fit, and
1: that was. So presumably, when you go to university, taking this story, and you went to Cambridge. Yeah. So yeah. when you go to university, you begin to unlearn what you think you've learned. I mean, yeah. you sort of like it's it's a it's a, yeah. it's a time when things be- become. More
0: complicated. And it, yeah, uh, and you know that's what you still do with undergraduates now. You make, you know, your job is to make things that anybody has ever thought simple seem complicated. I mean, that's I mean, yes. and that goes for I yeah. think any subject yes, yes. Um, that that you, you study at that level, and I think it's uncomfortable and it's uh, sometimes quite distressing actually to have those certainties unpicked. And I say, so, I mean. I remember that, you know, after spending years and years um, learning the grammar rules and then, you know, the list of exceptions to the rule, you know, what I learned at university was that the rules weren't quite right. <laughs> you know, that, that, that someone had kind of tried to persuade me that how people write and think and speak and uh, had clear rules that I could learn and then I had to learn them and then I had to learn the exceptions to them. Whereas, actually... Discovering that these were sort of ex post facto rules that had been imposed um, by a load of you nineteenth-century know, Brits and Germans, largely, not entirely, um, and that what what was going on, particularly in Latin, which was always much more rule-bound than Greek, um, was much messier, much more improvised. What people spoke wasn't like that. You know, I could suppose I'd imagine that people spoke like. Like the texts of Cicero that I read, and it was, it was both exciting but also slightly scary, to discover this subject that had been so very much in your control wasn't.
1: It? One, of, one of the things, just to flip forward now, you raise, you know, the idea that part of your job is to make people feel uncomfortable at university. That there's a there's a lot of discussion at the moment, isn't there, about um, students wanting to feel more comfortable. Yeah. Um, not necessarily about the rules of grammar, okay, no, but, but about but but but, but, but more generally yeah. the idea that universities should be a a safe space. Now, on, on one on the on the one extreme, that's got to be right in terms of as it were child protection or, or or teenage protection or whatever it is. But 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 it bleeds into a certain sort of like anxiety that people have about not enough ideas that the university has now become a place where less ideas are allowed.
0: Um, well, <clears throat> to start with, I think that the great British public have got fantastically over-exercised by trigger warnings. <laughs> you know, for some reason that phrase and that sense of, you know, undergraduates won't study this, has kind of taken root way beyond what I've ever seen in practice. Now, you know, I come from one university and uh, in one subject and but my experience is not that. And I suppose I I reckon that part of my job is to unsettle people intellectually, to make them think it's more difficult, to make them, you know, wonder about what they f- thought they felt certain about. What, you know, and not but just you don't in get pushed
1: back about sort of well, safe space for that sort well, of stuff. You know, I'm,
0: you know I, yeah, I'm I'm sure there is some of that. But it, it's, it's not the way that I conceive it. I mean, I think, look, if you want to make people try to think differently about whether it's their own world or the world of the Greeks and Romans, um, you you do have to make them feel uncertain and uncomfortable. But... You don't want to do that needlessly. I mean, if, if what you do is just shock them and don't kind of give them some kind of plan about what you're going to be talking about, then the teaching experience is not going to be as productive as if you respect, the anxieties that they have, and you know, it's it's you know, it's terribly old-fashioned to say that it's you know common sense because you know we you know we've long been taught that you know common sense. Common sense is, is itself loaded. Yes, you know, and of of course it is. But you know, if you want to, well, look, just to kind of think about it in your terms, if I'm teaching a load of students about Christian persecution, I would be very foolish if I wanted them. To follow me and come along with me and rethink some of the things, if I didn't recognise that some of them were Christians, mm. you know, I mean, it would just be it would be a dumb way of approaching a teaching scenario, and f- for me,
1: are you saying all that stuff about the uh, Christians and lions and so forth is rubbish? Is that what you're telling me?
0: <laughs> I think rubbish would be putting it a bit strongly, oh. but I think you do want. To help people understand why we have got so entranced by Christians and lions that we see in loads of movies, and you also want to help people see, at least from my point of view, why the early church invested in that kind of violence. You know, so
1: martyrdom. Yeah, and all that well, you sort of
0: stuff. know, you know, and you, you you get people to read some, you know, Acts of the Early Christian Martyrs, and it is as close to pornographic violence. As you can, That's
1: definitely come. true. Yeah. You
0: know what? You know people are having their breasts eaten. You know, it's they're being gutted, they're being, they're being tortured with the full panoply of lurid description of that. Now, <laughs> my job is not to, you know, put them off Christianity or you know whatever that's their business, but my job is to make them think about that very strange and rather uncomfortable set of Christian writings and to wonder what it is that drives it.
1: Now, one of the things that um, seems absolutely right that you're quite hot on is is the idea that when you do history, it's not just uncovering stuff that happened a while ago, but, you know, it is actually us in conversation (laughs) with the past. And we come with a whole load of... Very different yeah. questions and priorities, <laughs> migration, yeah. terrorism, yeah. all these sorts of things. So when you look back on that, you can't help but have a Fair. different sort of Fair. conversation with the past. Fair. That's that is one of your things, isn't well, it? That's
0: why that's why we could, we still go on studying the Greeks and <clears throat> Romans, and we're not just kind of reinventing the wheel all the time. Um, we are having a different sort of conversation with them because. We bring different things to the table. I mean, you know, when I was an undergraduate, we didn't study women. No. And, and no. that's a very simple one. You yeah. know, but it was only when I was a young lecturer that people started to do courses that really included women. And it was, it was the context of feminism in the 60s and 70s that changed that. And it changed the way we saw the world of the ancient Greeks. Because no one
1: really asked the question they, about about what women were doing. Yeah, uh, no, yeah,
0: they just because they weren't seen. And, you, you know, it was a, an eye-opener for lots of us to think, right, OK, it's not just that, as we would happily say, oh, women didn't have the vote and women were, you know, etc., a you know, load of exclusions. We started to think, so what is it about these texts that we're reading that is implicated in that society and that culture? You know, why doesn't more of... The Greek poetess Sappho survive. Right? Yeah. It's not, and so we were asking new questions. But uh, but I think that the 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 kind of image of a conversation is kind of important here, because we bring our new questions to antiquity, and antiquity becomes different, you know, and we make it different. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But at the same time, seeing us, you know, turning the kind of the telescope round, you find that you're looking at yourself too. And studying, you know, any period of history, I mean, I'm obviously most familiar with the ancient world, studying uh, us through their eyes, in a sense, is another part of of that equation. And I think it's very, um, very clear in some in in some cases of sort of the way that moral certainty um, can get unseated by looking at these brutish Romans. I, mean, I remember once they were a bunch of bastards, I, yeah, weren't they? they? You know, we're all bunches of bastards, Charles. Oh, okay. You okay. know, we just had we have different ways of being bastards. Okay. And but I, I remember very vividly some kind of encounters that um, you. You have. We were making a television programme about, partly about slavery. And we went to see some really, truly appalling slave quarters in Hadrian's palace outside Rome at Tivoli, um, big imperial palace. And you first of all wanted to say, well, we don't have slavery now.
1: That's not true. And then you think,
0: (laughs) uh uh, you know, hang on a minute there. What we're seeing here is actually a reminder to us that we do have people who still live in this kind of condition and that we may eschew the word slave, but they're still effectively non-free. And, you know, it's terribly easy to approach the ancient world and kind of think that we're better than it. And in all kinds of ways, we are. And you know, never, never ask me to go back to ancient Rome unless unless I've got a day return ticket. You know, for heaven's sake, you know, it would be truly awful. But it reminds us of the things that we don't look at about ourselves. So it is talking
1: to us in some ways. So and 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 if you look at, am I right in saying? Because I don't know. I know your popular work, but I. I haven't read your PhD, Mary. I don't know what it's about, on, I'm afraid. It's about
0: religion, about Roman religion. Oh, well, we might talk about that <laughs> in a minute. But,
1: but um, uh, if, if you look at a lot of uh, your popular work, the subjects that you seem to return to are some of those sort of the great existential you know there's 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 death there's sex there's gender relations there's things like democracy and mm. migration you know yeah. things that we're yeah. talking about yeah. is that that's that those yeah. are your interests but they're also yeah. our interests as yes. well aren't they yeah
0: and you know and in some ways obviously I'm a child of my time and you know the reason that I that my my antennae are out yes. for looking at ideas about incorporation of the outside migration etc is because I living in a world in which uh, we are very sensitised to those kind of debates. But it's also, I, I mean, I think that you feel, you know, in effectively what is a safe space? You know, the ancient the ancient Romans don't exist any longer. We yes, can talk yes, about yes. them however we want. Uh, um, yeah, none of us, in most cases, are directly implicated in that. Um, I think that you find that, they're reminding you of some of the things that are so odd about your own moral certainties or political debates. and And there is, yeah, I, I think that's quite different from saying we can learn from them. You know, we, you know the Romans uh, did not, would not have understood any kind of concept of illegal migration. Um, that they broadly speaking lived in a society that politically incorporated the outsiders rather than uh, I rather saw than a kept... lecture that you gave,
1: and uh, you um we 're talking about a tomb that was in some inscriptions on a tomb that was found up in the north of England, I think it was. Yeah. And the South chap Shields. was from Palmyra yes. in in what's now Syria. And he he seemed to be married to some woman called Queenie or something. <laughs> an Essex like. girl.
0: A good Essex girl. Yes. <laughs>
1: who, prob- who may or may not have been his, his slave. slave. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then underneath there's an inscription in, in, in Aramaic. Aramaic. Yes. You know. And you just think... In terms of, as it were, multiculturalism, it's an extraordinary it's an extraordinary read, isn't it? Yes,
0: and you think. uh, Also, you kind of then have to run with it because you think, I wonder what whether they look normal, you know. I wonder whether people said, oh. There's that Palmyrene who's married to an ethics girl. Dark skin, skin presumably, you know, pre- uh, darker than most of the denizens of. of yeah, you um, would have thought so? Of, Northumberland uh, or wherever it yeah, was called. Although the Roman army was probably pretty mixed, um, and you think so? How do we, you know, how do we convince people? because I think there is, you know, there's a, I've got a bit of a mission here, that this country was, was not all white until 1950s. Yes, yes,
1: yes. yes and yes, yes, yes,
0: and yes. when you try to say, look, uh, Roman Britain was an ethnically and culturally mixed community, you know, there were people putting Aramaic on their tombstones in South Shields. <laughs> Sorry, that's that is no offence to people of South Shields, but I don't think you find much Aramaic. Um, you know,
1: I don't speak too much Aramaic in Syria <laughs> anymore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you know, so it's 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 helping us to kind of re, recalibrate our certainties about what the past was like, because that does have implications to, with with the present. I mean, it is. Uh, Extremely um, unsettling to a lot of people, uh, as I know because they tell me on Twitter, <laughs> um, to think that there would be people of colour in Roman Britain, there would be people from all over the empire, that even high ranking uh, Roman officials in Britain um, might not have looked like the Romans that we see looking just like us in. Looking like just like us, but by us I mean, of course, you know, white us, um, in our uh, conventional, traditional history books.
1: I I really hesitate to raise this subject because um, because I know you're going to sort of press. Uh, you're probably going to press all my buttons on this one, but um, but in in in, in, <laughs> in terms of sort of rethinking things, I have to say, I suppose this is absolutely because I'm a Christian priest, but you know, the Romans for me are always going to be for me as a christian the archetypal enemy. Yeah, but you got mean, it wrong, Josh. Okay, so this you've is that, that's right. what I that's why I was saying I was I was uh, but you know, so I mean I'll just let me just just paint a little yeah. picture. I'm sure it's a familiar one to you, but then you can tell yeah. me what so you know the the Russians are the the invaders, they're the brutal invaders. Uh they're the ones that um, in the end, you know, destroy the Jerusalem temple. They, they, this sort of brutal sort of, and I suppose also partly because uh, of the history of anti Semitism. And I absolutely am not going to go down, Jews killed Jesus. Um, I'm just, I just don't, but not only do I not want to go down there ideologically, but I don't believe it. Then I pin it on the Romans.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, I, I, I'm certainly not going to sit here and try to convince you that the Romans were all nice guys.
1: Sounds Um, like a liberal sort of occupation. And and
0: even though, you know, part of me is arguing all the time that, look, they're, they're... they they are kind of working their empire by incorporation. There is a kind of multiculturalist about them. I don't think it's puppet mul- puppet like Herod I, and people I, like that. I, oh, you know well, how many you, know, you look at look at the tombstones of people in Rome and where they've come from. It's you know it's a, in our terms it's a cultural melting pot. Now that does not mean that it's a cultural melting pot in a kind of um twenty first century liberal kind of perspective. And the Romans were. You know, at the same time as they incorporated, um, People from anywhere in the empire actually in into Roman citizenship uh eventually all, all of them um you know they were just as capable as we are, if not more so, of being horribly xenophobic, you know saying, "God, there's a bloody Syrian in my street now um and uh, the prejudices of the Romans were some we would find familiar, some not so I'm not saying they're nice, however, I think why why you're wrong about. This, you know, Christians versus the Romans is that the Christians were Romans. You know, so you're setting this up as Romans. Well,
1: St. Paul versus... was certainly a Roman citizen, but
0: yeah. the. But well, the, um... it depends how yes. you decide, decide to define what being a Roman is. I see. Okay. And for me, I mean, I think the really interesting thing about Christianity, and, I, you, know, it's, you know, I know this is a partial view, but it is a religion of the Roman Empire. No, it grew up in the Roman Empire. It its its first adherents were people, some of them citizens, some not, who were inhabitants of the Roman Empire, I see. and that that Rome was, Rome was the was. The cradle in which Christianity, if you like, see it in your terms, was born. But I see them as insurgents against. Well, of course it, you do. Yes, I see, I see, I see. Of course you do, because right. you know that's that has become the narrative, and it appeals to kind of yes. radical priests like. I you. know. This is why I knew you'd
1: make me feel you uncomfortable. Know, liberation
0: <laughs> theology and yes, all yes, this, yes. With, with a bit of life of Brian Thorne. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. But, yes, but you know what? What I think is really interesting about Christianity is that. That it could not have it could not have grown without the Roman Empire. It is it is a religion which is embedded in a, a, a big world of communication. You know the fact that Saint Paul travels like he does. Yes, yes, yes. That and the fact that somehow this becomes so there's a world, access to
1: a sort of globalisation, I yeah. guess, to a to, yeah. a, to a to a to a to means of communicating more widely.
0: Yeah, you know, you can have you can have any. Um, Small time profit or big time profit before the Roman Empire in their own community, speaking good or bad, we don't. But but it doesn't it doesn't go anywhere. Mm. And for religion to expand and to grow, it has to be it has to be in a world of of hyper communication. And you know? and you just think. I mean, I think we, you know, you look at Saint Paul's letters, for example, and they seem to us, you know, obvious. You know, Saint Paul's letters the Corinthians, you know, and. Actually, it required a postal service of some sort, or it required at the very least, roads along which people could travel, as it were, to communicate.
1: So I'm gonna say something that's gonna get me in a lot of trouble now, but just to just to just to finally just to to to, nail it. Just just to show the extent of my and this is deep Protestant prejudice, but you know, I, I I have found myself saying uh, not only did the Romans kill Jesus, but they end up nicking his religion too. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, it does seem extraordinary that Rome becomes the HQ of... Yeah. I sound like Ian Paisley, don't I? But as like it's Rome becomes the HQ of the Roman Empire, of, of, of Christianity, when actually he died the, on a
0: Roman instrument of torture. Um, the the cheap answer to that yes. would say that the yeah. Romans are very good at backing the winning side. I see. Yeah. Um The more complicated answer to that, um, and a way which really transcends, you know, all the kind of practical infrastructural side, which I think is very important in the growth of Christianity, is that for some reason, that is a mystery to us. There were big cultural, social, intellectual changes going on throughout the Roman Empire at that time, or throughout, you know, come on, let's let's be honest, throughout the intellectuals of the Roman Empire. Mm. Because, you know, mm. if you think of most peasants in Britain, they, mm. you know, Roman Empire didn't mean very much apart from a new person to pay taxes to. So when we talk about this, we're, you know, we're always looking a bit high, actually. But so the kind of things that were clearly kind of revolutionary and attractive about Christianity are found in all kinds of other bits of Quotes pagan uh, thought and thinking at the time about the nature of the body, about you know the you know then you know about monotheism actually, and there's there's quite a lot of pagan monotheism, and in order to distinguish it from proper monotheism, yes, yes, we always yes. call it henotheism, right. using the Greek word yes. for one. Right, but in a sense, what you're what you're looking at um, with the growth of to some extent, mystical holy men—you're um, looking at something which is which is wider than uh, whatever Jesus started when he started it, and you know that is part of a bigger phenomenon, and that was and it, that was a, a an empire-wide phenomenon, mostly the eastern part of the empire, but not entirely. Um, and it's it's been one of the big big issues about I what do- explains those kind of big cultural changes because, you know, unless you go down the line, which I suppose you might do, saying, well, look, Christianity won because it was true, and that's, that is a, that's a logical position to hold. I mean, it's not one that I hold, but it's, you know, it's not illogical. Then you have to say, why did it, what were the conditions under which it seemed to be true, and how do they relate to other phenomena? Now, you can start to do quite a lot of description of that, but you can't start to. It's, it, nobody has got an explanation. So you know,
1: I, I, I suppose I have deep, deep within me a sort of prejudice that when the Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity and presided over the Council of Nicaea, um, uh, where sort of as it were official Christianity first gets to be, gets to be written up. Um, all of the sort of radicalism of the early church begins to get written out. Yep. So there's this a bit in the Nicene Creed where, and I've always... It always sort of sticks in my throat where we go, uh, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. Now, this is the official summary of the Christian faith. No, no teaching of Jesus is allowed into this no, official summary. No, no. You don't get Jesus talking about the poor, which he does. You don't get... Jesus talking about mm. um, forgiving enemies, which like, you know given the Romans are the head of the the largest war machine the world had ever seen at that point, probably you know i don't suppose the Emperor Constantine's is terribly keen on forgiving
0: yeah. enemies <laughs> I mean <laughs> it uh, gets written out by and, the Romans and, you know the the other side of the you know the story about why do I think Romans versus Christians is wrong as a as a kind of binary opposition yeah. it implies that that Christianity was a unitary phenomenon, yes, um, much like um what we kind of think we know it as today with a bit of a history to it and I think that one of the stories about Christianity is how a particular Orthodox version, and to some extent a Constantinian version of it, has becu- has has it, as it were obscured all the other variants. Sometimes, yes. sometimes you know, the, you know, the radical cleric kind of you know resurrects them, but that you know, it's, it's some bits of of what we might now lump together as parts of the movement of um. Early Christianities, yes. Put it in the yes, plural. Yes, absolutely, right. Um, some of those look really mad. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. You know, and there there are people here. I mean, I think you start off thinking, God, this is mad. You know, you know, I, I'm now going to invent an example. You know, but the world was, you know, it wasn't was not actually kind of um, born in a standoff between cosmic good and cosmic bad. Yes, you know, yes, um, yes, yes. Uh, what these people are doing, I think is part and parcel of something which is much bigger in terms of the cultural and intellectual shifts of the Roman Empire, is that they're trying to expand and test the limits of what it is to think differently about things. And sometimes when you know, we know that when people test the limits of what it is to think differently, they sometimes come up with completely crazy answers. And quite a lot of early Christianity is crazy. Quite a lot of it is state power. Um, what Jesus said or didn't say, quite often becomes, you know, a you know a, a symbolic rallying cry more than anything. Yes, anything in practice. And you know, the it's not just that the Romans killed Christianity, which is something that I would, you know. Uh, I, a, a for, formulation that I would contest, um, but even in crude terms, it's not that. It's that that um, Roman imperial power, in the end, formed what we think of as Christianity. And so that's you know it's kind of another reason why this, why this um, Christians to the lions and the standoff, is doesn't help us see why these things came about now I don't think you know I, I don't think anyone's got an answer you know and anybody who claims to to be able to explain to you why why the Roman world quotes became Christian yes. you know they're bound to be wrong
1: yes yes. The Emperor yeah. Constantine probably didn't have a dream about uh,
0: about, <laughs> about
1: winning in battle. Although
0: he does get he gets unfairly um, criticised for one thing because people do say, "Oh look, he was only cri- he was only actually baptised uh, on his be- deathbed. You know, he was hedging his bets. A nasty old thing. Now,
1: and the influence of women around him, of course, they were the ones that made him do it.
0: <laughs> but um, my understanding—you probably know better than, uh, than me about this—is that it was not unusual. In uh, the early church, to be to be baptised very late.
1: I didn't know that. Actually, yeah, I know, didn't know that. That might be Constantine
0: true. is not the only one, but it is always presented as, "Canny old bastard." You know? <laughs> Which where am I going to leap? Well, uh,
1: so let's relieve religion, because we've talked a bit oh, about that. God. That's all my. That's all my. I mean, I suppose the other thing that I mean, looking at. Um, the ancient world from the perspective of today. Um, one of the things that, and I imagine you'll talk about this in your Gifford lectures coming up, but democracy is clearly, you know, one of the things that we we thought we understood, actually. I mean, maybe even before the last couple of years. We thought we knew how it works, and now we're perhaps a little bit more, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, some of us might be confused, some of us might be circumspect. I don't know what it is about democracy. I, we might disagree
0: more on this than on religion, actually. Yeah um i think that there is an a, a lack of reflection about what what a democracy is and how it works and how it empowers people is absolutely stunningly dreadful right you know that and i remember when i was an undergraduate at cambridge you know another of these kind of light bulb moments in your life is that uh, there was a great Greek historian called Moses Finlay who re- revolutionised the study of, of ancient Greece and particularly worked on slavery. And you know, it was you know, he was part very much of the changing turn in classics towards, you know, not looking only at the old white male generals. Yes. I remember him saying when he was talking about democracy, he said, there isn't a country in the world. And this was pre Um, you know, the end of the Cold War. There's not a country in the world that doesn't claim to be democracy. You know, the German Democratic Republic, you know. Now, uh, and that is because democracy has become a slogan for a system of which we approve.
1: It's an honorific, but it doesn't really... It doesn't have have as much content as we think. No, it
0: doesn't. And I think that looking at the debates about... um, Around Brexit, but yes, but, go uh, and say it. You know, I'm going to say the B-word, and we disagree. Anyway. But I think that you'd say that it's Brexit has been a catalyst to us having those debates. It, you know, it hasn't. It, it hasn't kind of invented these problems. No. They were there all the time, and it's. I mean, it does seem to me that in in modern. In the modern media, but probably more widely than that, democracy has come down to being a system where you vote, and that voting and democracy have been thought to be coterminous. And you can see that, I think, in when you see, um, you know, slightly Western triumphalist. Uh, accounts of how we have you know brought democracy to afghanistan you know and what do you have what picture accompanies that it's a picture usually of a woman in a burqa putting a ballot paper in a yes. ballot box and the it, what it seems to me is that unless you know v- voting is an important part of democracy no one's going to suggest that it isn't but unless we uh, uncouple the idea of voting being the only thing that is democratic, we we're not going to begin to think about it. And I think this is where again, you know, parts of the ancient world, you know, can sensitise you that you know, one of the things that the ancient Athenians worried about, you know, and they didn't have their radical democracy for all that long, and they talked about it a hell of a lot, and most of them <laughs> talked about it, um, you know, not being hugely keen on it, you know. Um, you you see that they are very much working with the idea that there are other aspects to this, you know. And do what know, are those other aspects? Well, education and information.
1: Oh, I see. You oh, know. I know what you're saying there.
0: You know, <laughs> and I'm not. I'm not saying you're calling me stupid, Mary. <laughs> I think, but I have spent so much time on blasted Twitter saying. Neither side in this referendum. I know you're not. I was just making a I I was making a joke. I know. (laughs) You know, but you get it all the time. Neither none of us knew. Now, unless you unless you have access to to information You cannot be a responsible democratic citizen. Now, there are all kinds of other things that you can do. There's a
1: question about who controls the information, isn't there? And there's a
0: question about who controls the information, and that has always been the case. And there's also a question, and the Athenians were probably even more anxious about this, about the use of persuasion and rhetoric. And what, what... what do you do and put it in know comic playwright aristophanes terms what do you do about someone who makes the worst argument seem the better one now and in in for fifth century greek intellectuals athenian intellectuals hmm. um it was the dangers of rhetoric that lay at the very heart of the problems of democracy hmm. now I mean, I don't think they're giving us the answer. Um, and, you know, I, I'm always terribly suspicious when people who say, oh, look, let's go back to the fifth century and let's choose everybody by lot or something like this. You know, come on. Um, you know, fifth century Athens was a, you know, had a citizen body which is about the size of a large students' union. And it's <laughs> not, you know, it's much easier to be a democracy with 30,000 voters. Isn't it? But I think we we have to think about. Thinking more widely about what enables a democratic community to to use its democracy, I'm not going to say responsibly because they're not being you know people didn't you know in the last referendum they they weren't voting irresponsibly in their terms, uh, you know and neither me nor you nor anybody else, um, but we were voting uh, without information. Uh, and i think that 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 has got somehow um passed aside
1: and i i, I think we valorise rhetoric i mean we the va- rhetoric re- it remains a problem doesn't it i mean it, it absolutely remains a problem and it as it as it did and i mean it wasn't just the greeks of course the romans yeah. and cicero yeah. the great a... orator um and we, we 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 think about um you know his great speech uh against catiline and yeah. but of course you know they rounded up uh, after the speech, didn't they round up the, uh, Cataline's supporters and execute, and executed them without trial, due trial? Yeah. So I mean, this yeah. this rhetoric, even yeah. in the ancient yeah. world, is extremely no. dangerous. And, and they
0: and the, ancient thinkers were, were were much more acute about seeing that as a problem. I see. Than we are. I mean, I'm not sure. I don't think. Didn't they aren't... smash down
1: his house and build a, a goddess, a, a temple to the goddess of liberty, or something they like did. that, on the top of it? They did. They did. Um, Do you think that's what's going to happen with Aaron Banks's house, or,
0: or I don't know who the who the Boris's house? <laughs> know. You know, I mean, I, I feel terribly conflicted here, uh, as I you know uh, you know I've learnt to feel conflicted from reading all this ancient stuff. You know, persuasion is good. You know, we, we you know we want to live in a world in which we don't fight it out. Um, we persuade each other, or we persuade each other, whether that's to compromise, you know, we that persuasion is good. And yet uh, persuasion can mean that we're persuading someone to do using the techniques of rhetoric, uh, which are both uh, plausible but also dangerous, to make them take the wrong decision. Well, aren't you sort of instrumentalizing rhetoric a little bit there? Yeah. Because isn't yeah. it just that
1: uh what people are doing is not sort of you know buying some you know fake news type of no, the the, no, the rule no, how no, to do yeah, fake news they're actually saying what they think i mean passionately persuasively but they're but they are actually
0: isn't isn't there a what you uh, I mean, call rhetoric isn't uh, isn't it no. just sort of like no you're partly right um, and I am instrumentalizing it, and of course that's what you know. That's what the ancients do in having their handbooks on rhetoric. You know? yeah. But that yeah. there's a long history of instrumentalizing rhetoric. But you're also, I suspect, being slightly naive when you say they're just saying what they think. Mm. Mm. I know we can, you know, we're not going to name them, but
1: yeah, um, yeah, 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 You know, yeah, the, yeah. the
0: the you know, what do you learn? What what is the fear that the ancients have uh, about? Rhetoric and what is you know also its skill, its amazing skill, is that you can take an argument and you can argue plausibly for it and you can argue plausibly against it. You know what do we do in debating clubs? You know the, what is the ideal of the debater? Yeah, it is that that you give him or her a subject uh, and you can say argue for it or against it, and what you're privileging is. Somebody you can make applause. Moral is like that. Side. Side. Yeah, Do it all the time. Yeah. You know, well, yeah. And, and to some extent, you know, and you know, an awful lot of British debate and decision making is, and it, and that's the fundamental conundrum. We're not going to solve. Sounds quite
1: public schooly, doesn't it? I mean, it does. Does have all those debating club type of thing, doing the classics uh, and so forth. Is there a, uh, presu- a presumably the majority of your students doing classics come from? posh schools, would that be right?
0: Um, increasingly less so. OK. And I think that, again, there's, you know, it would be obviously wrong... To say that you know one of the great forces for democratizing the British education system had been the study of Latin, you know, um, and for many, I'm not you, decrying no, it, but no, I mean there is a no, connection it, between rhetoric it, well, and it, public school it, it, and our politics. Well, well and, and so you so look, well, and you look at you know the Oxford and Cambridge Union societies, and then you know, and you know, where's your next stop, Prime Minister? Well, hmm. sunshine, hang hmm. on, there's you know there's hmm. millions of other people in this country mm. who might make very good mm. prime ministers. The fact that you have learned all this kind of stuff is uh, you know, is, is neither here nor there. I mean, I think that uh, there has been a, a huge move to spread the enjoyment of the classical world and the things that it can teach. You know, it's not the be-all and end-all. I'm not a kind of person who thinks that everybody should learn Latin. God help us, you know, so there are other things to learn. Um, more democratically... And I think that's wholly to the good. And now, for example, in Cambridge, we have a, um, a course, and you can find similar at every university, where if you've not had the chance to study Latin or Greek at school, you can come and you can do a full proper classics course with an extra year, and we'll teach you. You know, so, you know, we, you know, th- I think people also worry a little uh, needlessly about, you know, they have an idea that people like me are sitting in Cambridge just re- waiting for the next uh, intake of rather dim, posh boys. You know, well, we don't want to teach rather dim, posh boys. We want to teach clever people um, who are keen and industrious and they come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Yes, some yes. posh boys, you know, let's face it, some posh boys are clever. Um, but we're not sitting there kind of thinking, oh, let's keep classics to ourselves because it's a nice. It's a club, we're not doing that. Um, so, and I think that the you, you have to be very careful about aligning totally. Although there's clearly some truth in it, uh, that sense of you know, a privileged auteur with the study of, of the ancient world. And actually, if you look at British um, uh, social and political reform over the last. 200 or so years, you know, the 1830s Great Reform Act, um, that was driven by people who had worked out a version of suffrage, OK, no women, <laughs> but of, of widening suffrage on the basis of what was happening in what used to happen in fifth century classical Athens? You know, so one of the Putty the, debates,
1: well, the party debates, and uh, and um, and those sort of seventeenth century sort of radicals—they they look to the Bible quite a lot as well, they don't do, they? They do,
0: yeah. You know, <laughs> and I think there's, you know, and we could, you know, I could sit here and I could tell you why, um, you know, Saint Paul was absolute. You know, God, you know, tall and <laughs> women, you know, beam, yes, yes. beam I... me up, Scotty. Yes, yes, But actually, all these things have been, and thats part of the conversation of history. All these things have been um, used, talked about. They've—they've they've influenced the debate on radical causes as much as. Uh, conservative causes. And that—that that is true of the church as much as it's I'm true. I'm sure that's true. And I think that, I, I mean, I get slightly fed up with some of my colleagues, not many sometimes, when they say, oh, look, classics has just got a toxic history. It is, you know, it has been a I wound you up a bit on this. It has been, <laughs> sorry. yes, good, no. It's, you know, you put the penny in the slot and, it, it you know, it's, you know, of course classics, of course the church have been bastions of all yes, kinds yes, of yes, things yes. that which we deplore, you know, you know, white supremacy, racism, et cetera. But just don't forget, you know, that, um, you know, the origins of what we would now call, you know, the gay movement, they would not have called it then in the 19th century, was also, it was partly driven and legitimated and symbolised by a contact with the classical world. Classic, You know, subjects, you know, subjects aren't, and religions aren't toxic by nature. They're only made toxic by people who choose to use them in that way.
1: Um, I, I can't help. But when we talk about, when we think about sort of Cicero and rhetoric, I can't help just wondering what Cicero would have made of Twitter. (laughs) He'd have been horribly good at it. He would, wouldn't he? Uh...
0: You know, loathsomely <laughs> good at it, sanctimoniously I mean, the, the good at it. I mean, there's a soundbite, you know. Yes. Why are you
1: trying our patience? What's that, yes. what's that, what's yes. that famous how line? How long
0: will you go to, you know, how long, O Catalina, will you abuse our patience? That's you know, it is brilliant, and it's still a, a, it still occurs. You know, quo usque tanem, O Catalina, still appears in demonstrations, you know, in this country. I mean, the the anti-brexit demonstration i mean the pop- people's vote demonstration i <laughs> uh, you were right first time <laughs> the, people- <laughs> oh, oh. Um, the people's vote demonstration as i should call it um had a brilliant um bit of ciceronian latin I did quote, it, did it, did under, it. and so did the women's that, march that
1: fit that would fit onto twitter wouldn't it that would get it out did. that yeah. actually would actually twitter yeah. that would be t- what however many yeah. a character you you do you 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 get you get a lot of stick twitter, I mean you get you you do really well, but also you've got lots of followers and people love you on Twitter, but you've fallen foul of the Twitter mob, haven't mm, you
0: yeah, and I think it's it's instructive I mean you know basically on Twitter, I think uh I get more out of it than I lose you know that uh, a simple profit loss account right you know that that I learn things i I meet I kind of strangely virtually meet people you know on twitter i I think that You know, it does fit a bit with one's anxieties about kind of rhetoric and persuasion, um, you know, and what the right role of persuasion is in, you know, within contemporary culture. it's nasty. It it, It is nasty. It is... Posturing, it is full of outrage rather than... I mean, anybody who tries irony on Twitter, poor love, you know, um, that's always a disaster. Um, you And it, the sneeringness of it. And, you know, I have to say, those kind of qualities uh, are shown not only by the people who... You know, I would count as my sort of natural opponents, you know. You know, the alt-right is pretty nasty on Twitter, very nasty. So is the virtuous left. Um, and I think it's, it it kind of brings about a culture which all you can do is shout or sneer at one another. Now, you know, maybe that's giving too much importance to Twitter because in the end, you know, it's only a social medium, you know. Yeah. But but it... it it sets um, a kind of tone of argument. And I think that it's, you know, I, I notice people boasting about how many people they've blocked on Twitter. Oh, yes, yes. yes. You know, I've got a block list of several thousand people there, And I think, are you proud of that? You know, if you're going to be on social media, you don't have to pay any attention. I to do them. block some
1: people when they're just like us, just so. Nasty, but...
0: I, uh... I um, found that I had blocked some people, but uh, obviously only by pressing the wrong button and I, I, I unblocked them. <laughs> Can you imagine? You probably blocked one of your great what, friends or what, something like that I, I've never know, talked I to you But, you know, I think, you know, if there's something good about Twitter, it is that we talk to people that uh, we don't usually talk to. And that's, you know, and I mean, I think there's a disappointment that people feeling it because it was you know, it was paraded as how we were going to, you know, us ordinary people, we're going to be in communication with the people who run the country well you know we know the prime minister doesn't actually write their own tweets we know they don't read them there's a wonderful bit on david cameron's when he was prime minister saying if you actually want to reply please send a letter you know and you think um you know in a way people were lured to think that this was hugely democratic and you know and you look at the the kind of the, uh, you know in some ways justifiable anger of people who were shouting out and they've got 10 followers and no-one's listening to them. And, you know, this isn't, you know, this Twitterism is, a, uh, is a, a medium in which, by and large, there are some exceptions, um, where existing privilege is replicated.
1: it's oh, right? very interesting, isn't it? You know?
0: And I think uh, that's not to say, you know, and I, you know, I've got to count myself there, you know, and uh, it's not... You're very
1: self-deprecating, aren't you? I think that's why people love you so much. Honestly, do I think it's like you—you genuinely are. You have that. I mean, it's—it's not just a tick that you yeah. that you do it, but but you, you you're you have that gift for, and I think it's part of and, and it's bravery as well. It's when you put yourself in a place and you are genuinely self-deprecating.
0: Yeah, and I, and we both know what the argument against that is that it is the privilege of the privilege to be self-deprecating yes. you know it's just like it's the privilege of the privilege always to be courteous on twitter and yes. you know i find myself saying oh look you know why do you you know if you stopped calling me those names then maybe we could have a conversation about this yes. um and yet as i write that you know i i see that i'm using courtesy as a weapon actually against people who don't feel they've got any if you're cross,
1: no access to then, the same. No.
0: On the other hand, when you when you sit there, and you just get if you look at it, and you know this happens to you sometimes, and I think you're better you're better than I am at just saying I'm not going to look at this, you know, just. I don't know if that's true. Um, or perhaps you persuade me that you haven't, but you have really, and I think there is. When you get a Twitter storm against you, it is like being, you know, beaten. It's like being whipped, actually. It's like being punched repeatedly. And it, you know, sometimes you can you know, manage that and you, know, you can sign off, at least pretend to sign off with a, with a jolly quip and say, yeah, I'm yeah. off to the library. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you, <yeah>. know. <laughs> you know, other times you think this, I, I, I have now been... Mm. Uh, I I've been assaulted. Yeah. I've been assaulted. <clears throat> and it's it's not so much about what any individual person says because there's a you know there's a limit to the kind of insult that you can do in 280 characters but it's the fact that it's one coming another you know and uh, and you know you look up after another minute and you've got another um 12 people at least saying that you're a you know yeah, you X-Y-Z, just name it. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: and it is uh utterly enervating.
1: Well, Mary Beard, it may well be a privilege uh, in 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 the sort of uh, in, in, in the sense that we've just talked about that, that we sit down and we have these sorts of conversations. Um, but it is also a privilege in a, in the nice way you, that, we, that we've sat I've, I've yeah. sat down here and talked to you, yeah. and I've enjoyed it very much indeed. Mary Beard, thank you. Thank you. Me too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing, and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com.